I want you to picture this and, and see if you can imagine what I'm talking about. Everything is beige. The, the, the word uh, drab is really the only appropriate word to describe this place. The, the walls are beige. The carpet is beige. The ceiling is beige. There are little slits for windows. There are lots of people and none of them is smiling. <clears throat> there are lots of chairs, and the chairs are all uncomfortable because they were purchased in 1962. And the, all the chairs are full, and in spite of all the chairs being full, there are people standing in long lines, and nobody is smiling. Nobody is glad to be there. Nobody is there because this is where they want to be. Where am I? DMV? DMV? Not DMV. Jail? Not jail. The courthouse. I was on jury duty this week. Yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, as a, as a proud American, I am thankful for the privilege of having our jury trial system. So when I get that summons, I never try to get out of it. I try to do everything I can to go, so I did the thing, you know, where you get, you have to call in each night, and I did that, and, and I got through three nights where I didn't have to go in, then on Thursday, they said, you got to be here Thursday morning, so I got there Thursday morning, I spent the entire day on Thursday morning at the LA County Courthouse, um, they, they put me in a group of about 100 people, ran us into a courtroom, and started interviewing potential jurors, and they just never called my number, and they never called my number, and they never called my number. And so I sat and listened to attorneys ask the exact same questions to about 75 different people and waited for my number to be called, only to find that we ran out of time. They sent us home and said, be back tomorrow morning so we could continue to do this. We came back on Friday. They um, put us in. Finally, they called my number. And they appointed me to be a juror on a two-week jury as an alternate. <laughs> not the first alternate, not the second alternate, the third alternate. So I got to hope like three people have heart attacks. That's what I'm doing. I'm hoping three people on the jury pass out or have to leave or something so that I get a chance to actually participate in this thing because I'm going to put in the hours whether I'm going to participate or not. But if you're, a, if you're an alternate, you don't even get to have a say. You just have to sit and listen and take notes. You don't even get to deliberate. You don't get to give your opinion. You don't get to have any. Now, I am the world's biggest extrovert. This means I have to sit quietly for two weeks and speak to nobody. <laughs> and so I'm asking you to pray for me this week. And next week, uh, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm very happy to do my civic duty. I, I hope you guys do too, because, because if, I, if ever you or a loved one gets falsely accused of something, and it would be false because you guys are a wonderful group of people, you would never do anything wrong. But if any of you ever got falsely accused of something, you would not want a bunch of losers who have nothing else to do on your jury, right? You would want solid people on your jury. So I encourage you to be one of those solid people on somebody's jury one day. I'm happy to do it. 
It's just that it's not a good time. I had other plans. I don't know if I told you, but I've been off work for two months. There, there's, a, there's a calendar that is just filled up in my life. And, and there are people that have been waiting patiently for two months to meet with me who are supposed to be meeting with me this week and next week and those kind of things. There's all kinds of work that I've been putting off for weeks and weeks that has to get done. And now I'm going to be sitting in a jury box taking notes on a trial that I will very likely have nothing to do with for the next two weeks. And I had other plans. You ever been there? <laughs> life, life just kind of throws you a curveball. You go, that is not what I planned. Sometimes it comes up in the, in the form of a pregnancy stick. <laughs> That's not what I planned. Right? Some, sometimes it comes up in a, in a traffic accident. I was just on my way and all of a sudden in a flash, everything changed. Sometimes it's a phone call you get and you say, ah, I wonder why he would be calling only to find out it's terrible news. And things are going to be different from now on. As a pastor, I get the blessing of being able to officiate weddings. Right? Yeah, you have to do the funerals, so they let you do the weddings. That's the balancing thing, right? So I get to do weddings, and, and over the thousand years that I've been a pastor, I've done a whole bunch of weddings. And and I, I have, if you ever want to hear funny wedding stories, just find me at a party. I will tell you funny wedding stories because I've been to a million weddings. And I've seen everything under the sun that can happen at a wedding happen. But I'm going to tell you the thing I've never seen. I had never stood up here with the bride and groom joining hands and looking into one another's eyes, scowling at each other. I've never seen that yet. I've never seen a couple that as they look at each other and take their vows, it's obvious in their face, I can't stand you, I don't want to be here with you. I've never seen that. What I see is this faraway look in their eyes, this sense of, you complete me, this is what I've been waiting for, this is such an amazing day. I mean, I see that more in the eyes of brides than grooms, to be honest, but, but I see it. But you know what? The divorce courts are filled. And none of those people were thinking, hey, in two or three years, if this doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced. But sometimes life happens, and we're not expecting it. And sometimes there's pain that we had no idea was coming. Sometimes we get a call into the boss's office thinking maybe it's time for that promotion only to, only to find out it's time to clean out our desk and go home. Every now and then, we all find out that even in the best planned life, there are surprises. The Bible's full of these examples. I could give them to you all day. Christmas is coming, so we might as well start with Mary and Joseph. Every Christmas, I, I, I talk to you about Mary and Joseph because they're kind of central to the picture, right? 
and, and as a pastor, I got to come up with something new to say about the Christmas story every year. And this year, I got, what, four Sundays or so that I'm going to be preaching on Christmas. I'll probably tell you Christmas story from the perspective of the donkey or something like that, because I got to find some way to make it new and interesting to you. You know the story of Mary and Joseph, right? They're this young couple, they're in love, they're ready to get married, everything is good, they're excited, their whole life is ahead of them, they're making plans, right? And suddenly their plans get changed, and it shocks them, and it freaks them out. But God sends an angel, and the angel smooths things out, and he explains, and he says, listen, it's going to be okay, in fact, it's better than okay, this is the ultimate blessing. God has chosen you to be the earthly parents of the Son of God, the Savior of the world is coming through you, and you're going to have a chance to have an intimate relationship with him, it's okay. And they exhale, and they look at each other in the eye, and they hold hands, and they go, yeah, it's going to be okay. And then they have to go talk to their parents. And their parents don't think it's okay. And their parents are baffled. And their parents are confused. And voices are getting raised, right? And they have to deal with that. And they have to deal with the snickering as they walk by in the street, as the people in the community hear about what's going on and the story they've been telling folks. And ultimately, they have to get on this track to go all the way to Bethlehem so they could pay extra taxes at the time when she's ready to give birth. They end up in a stable, and she has to give birth in the stable. I realize I just told you the whole story. You don't have to come in December. Here's my point. They had other plans. They were not prepared for this. There's another famous Joseph in the Bible. He's in Genesis. His story begins in chapter 37. You probably know his story as well. He's the guy with the fancy robe, right? His dad loved him the most, gave him the multicolored robe, and he was the, he was the king, and he thought everything was great. And God actually had a huge plan for his life and appeared to him in dreams and gave him the plan. You're going to be a great leader. You're going to be a ruler of people. You're going to serve all these people and take care of them. Everybody's going to follow you. People are going to bow down in your presence. He thought he understood the plan. And then his brothers threw him in a pit and left him to die. Until they got a better idea and said, you know, if we take him out of the pit, we could sell him to slave traders. They pulled him out of the pit. He said, oh, thank God, they sold him to slave traders. He said, no, thank you. And off he went to Egypt where he was sold in the open market. He was purchased by a wealthy Egyptian leader by the name of Potiphar. And he was put in charge of menial tasks. And he worked in those tasks until he he caught the attention of his master. And he rose up in the ranks of his household until finally he was given control of the whole household. He was a slave, yes, but he was living as a rich man. And then Potiphar's wife had this whole thing that happened, and if you haven't read it, you can find it in Genesis, and it messed up his whole life. Joseph had to run for his life. He got caught. They threw him in a dungeon, a dungeon that people don't come out of. And that's where he found himself, knowing that God had a plan for his life. That's where he found himself. What do you do when you're sure God has a plan for your life, but you can't get a break? And it doesn't seem like that plan has any chance of coming about. You've all heard of David, right? The shepherd boy. You know, they called him in and they anointed him as king of Israel. 
when he was a teenager. And once you're anointed king, I assume he expected that there would be a parade and he would be taken into Jerusalem where they would put him on the throne and people would bow down and everybody would cheer for him. But instead, Samuel left and his father said, what are you doing here in the house? You should be back out there with the sheep and send him right back out there with the sheep where he had been before, where he spent the next several years scraping sheep stuff off the bottom of his sandals. Is that what a king does? He got this opportunity, of course, he went out to the, to the battlefield and there he fought Goliath and defeated him and became an instant hero. Finally, God's plan must be coming about. Now he'll be the king. No, all he did was make the king jealous. And now the king was after him and he was on the run. Do you know that David spent 15 years from the time that he was anointed king to the time that he sat on the throne? And where did he spend those 15 years? He spent them with sheep in the battlefield, living in caves, running for his life, acting like a madman among the Philistines. That's a lot of painful waiting, especially when you don't understand what the heck is going on. I could tell you a lot more stories. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Noah, Abraham, Esther, Ruth, Moses. It almost doesn't matter which story you pick. These Bible heroes, the Bible's filled with their stories and the sufferings that they went through. But you know what's interesting? Doesn't it seem like in the Bible, it always ends happily ever after? It doesn't seem to matter how, how much the guy goes through. Eventually, he experiences the blessings and it all works out in the end. How many of you would say that your experience tells you it's not always like that? That it doesn't always work out in the end. That sometimes bad news is just bad news. Never gets any better. Pain is part of human life. There's no way to avoid it. You cannot be human and live without suffering. Nobody avoids it. We all suffer physically. We all suffer emotionally, we all suffer financially, we all suffer socially in our relationships. We all fail from time to time. Every one of us in this room knows what it's like to take a step, to take a chance and fall flat on your face right in front of everybody and humiliate yourself. There is suffering in this life. And if you want a theological explanation for it, I can give you a nice, tidy little theological explanation for why God could be so good and yet there could still be so much pain and suffering. Obviously, it has to do with sin. God didn't invent sin. He just created man with a choice. Man made the choice to rebel against God in spite of the consequences, and part of the consequences is the suffering that we face today. It's really a very simple answer, right? Makes theological sense, doesn't it? Try to tell it to the person who's a mother who's sitting by the bed of her daughter in the hospital and can't get any good news from the doctors. Try to tell it to the husband who can't find his way even though his wife's been gone for three years and people say you should be over it by now, shouldn't you be moving on and he can't even define himself anymore without her. Try to use this great theological argument to comfort a teenager 
who's dealing with same-sex attraction and can't understand how that could happen and how they could actually want to go after God and still have this temptation. Or tell the young wife who has a hard time connecting with her husband because of what some man did to her when she was a little girl. Pain. Suffering. It's real. And the plain hard truth is that we all suffer sometimes. But knowing that doesn't make the suffering easy, does it? And these Bible stories, they all work out in the end. Noah gets his rainbow and David gets to be king and Esther saves her people and Joseph ends up as prime minister and they all live happily ever after. But that's not how it always is for us. Sometimes minor surgeries lead to funerals. Sometimes bankruptcies lead to homelessness. Some marriages end in divorce, even though both people are good people. It doesn't always work out the way we hoped. This sermon series called Operation was inspired by the fact that I just had a big operation. And and I I really struggle with even doing this because I I didn't want to turn too much of the attention to me, but I I learned some huge lessons and, and saw some truths illustrated while I was in the hospital that um, I think come to bear in our lives, and so um, I want to share with you. I mean, I, I'm feeling much better now, and it's only been two months, but I'm going to tell you the truth. The experience was no fun at all. I, I talked to somebody today who hadn't seen me in a long time, and they said, you're skinny. I said, that's a relative statement. <laughs> Yeah, an elephant is skinny compared to a, to a whale, right? It's all relative. I said, well, let's not say skinny. Let's say less fat. So I'm less fat. But I wouldn't recommend this weight loss program to anybody. I didn't enjoy one second of it. Still struggling with some of it. That first night in the hospital... It was the longest night of my life. And I know a lot of you have been through something like this, and you know what it's like, and they tell you, you know, you're going to wake up, there's going to be a tube in your throat, and you're not going to like that at all. When they tell you that, believe them. (laughs) I don't like that at all. They finally got that out, and I thought that's going to be good. That was before my son tripped on my catheter. (laughs) Did I just say that out loud? I did, didn't I? You guys, this is so funny. You guys are so much more compassionate than the first service. The first service laughed for 10 minutes when I said that. You guys are like, oh, they were all laughing. They're still laughing at at lunch. They're laughing about it right now. Um, You know, that first night I looked at the clock. It's on the wall there. And, you know, it's just like 1132. And then I fell asleep for three or four hours. And I woke up and it was 1136. And I fell asleep for another three or four hours and woke up and it was 11.40. And I, I mean, it messes with you. And that, that night went on forever. And there wasn't a moment of it that I enjoyed. And at the beginning of a trial like that, you see absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. 
Things like standing up become a huge milestone for you to aim at. Things like eating, going to the bathroom. These are, these are big goals, things that you can look forward to. Huge milestones to reach. And it stinks to not be able to get past obstacles that don't seem like they should feel so large, but they are. Have you ever been there? You don't have to have surgery to know what I'm talking about. If you've been through any kind of extended illness, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever gone through serious problems in your marriage, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been called into the boss's office only to find out that you're going home and cleaning out your desk, you know what I'm talking about. I'd like to promise you something. That as Christians, you don't have to go there. I would like to promise you that, but I can't. Because the scripture tells us that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we might have to go there more often than others. That's the truth. I want you to take your Bibles uh, and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Daniel. It's toward the back of your Old Testament. And I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 3. And, and while you're looking for the book of Daniel, let me just uh, set the stage for you. What's happened is that Israel has rebelled against God and God has used this other nation, Babylon, in order to punish them and, and, and to bring them back to him. And Babylon has taken a bunch of the um, Israelite young men captive and taken them to Babylon, re-educated them and put them to work in the Babylonian government. Among them is the guy named Daniel, who the book is written about. Another one, uh, another, uh, others of them are uh, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who have the more famous Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you've heard of them. They, they were servants of the Babylonian king, and they drew the jealousy of some of the Babylonian men who set them up for failure. The king made a rule. He said, I'm going to put up this statue whenever music plays and want everybody to turn and face the statue and fall down and worship the statue. And as followers of the one true God, they couldn't worship anyone but him. And so they got ratted out. And we're going to pick it up in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13, when the king is mad at these guys. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, burning, from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know what happens. The king becomes angry. He heats the furnace even hotter, and then he calls for them to be tied up and bound and thrown into this giant furnace where they're going to be incinerated. And, and you know that when they're thrown into the furnace, they land among the flames. But of course, this being a Bible story, it ends happily ever after. Because within the flames, they come across Jesus. And Jesus meets them in the flames, rescues them from the flames, delivers them out of the burning furnace. And this is a turning point for Babylon from that day forward because the king recognizes that there is a God who is even bigger and stronger than him. And it's this great, wonderful story, right? And we go, see, just another one that's not like my life. I end up in the furnace. I want you to notice something. They said, we believe that our God is able to deliver us. And then they said this, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve only him. See, we forget sometimes, I think, when we read these nice little Sunday school stories, we forget that they actually did get thrown into the furnace. And can you imagine for a second what it was like when they were having their hands and feet bound? Can you imagine the fear and the anguish that they must have felt when these guards were taking them and chucking them into the flames? Do you think for a second that they thought, oh, the flames won't hurt us? No, they were about to die and they knew it. And they understood that they, rather than bow down to a false god, were going to die and stand before the one true God. They knew it. They were as surprised as anybody when Jesus was in the furnace. They were as surprised as anybody when they came out and their clothes didn't even smell like smoke and their hair was not singed. And the only thing that burned was the ropes that held them bound. They were shocked. <laughs> they didn't know to expect that. See, they were not delivered until they were in the flames. I can relate to that. They suffered before they were delivered. And by the way, so did David. <laughs> yeah, he became king after 15 years of suffering. And, and so did Moses, and so did Elijah, and so did all the others that I mentioned earlier. Being a follower of God does not guarantee freedom from pain. I know that there are pastors out there who will tell you it does. I know that there are best-selling books out there that will tell you if you just accept Jesus, God's plan for your life is that you will have wealth and, and prosperity and health and never another problem. I know that you can find authors and radio personalities and television personalities who will tell you that if you just have enough faith, you'll never have to suffer again. I'm here to tell you it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says following God involves suffering. Don't you think I wish I could tell you a different story? But the Word of God tells us that following Jesus faithfully guarantees that there will be pain. You say... Well, that's a little harsh. Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself. Go to Matthew chapter 5, the great sermon on the mount, and let's see what Jesus has to say. 
New Testament, first book, fifth chapter. Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get persecuted for the sake of righteousness, according to Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter 10 of Matthew. And we'll just let Matthew comment on this for now. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You don't hear a lot of sermons preached on this. You will be hated if you follow Jesus, but if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Salvation and endurance are inextricably linked. We have to endure. We have to endure hardship. We're going to have to endure pain. We're going to have to endure suffering. That's how it is. And then in chapter 10, verse 39, just a few more verses down. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We're going to have to lay down our lives if we're going to follow Jesus. Paul talks about it too in Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans 8. Right after Acts, you come to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It's talking about how we are um, children of God because of His grace and how as children of God we have certain blessings. But here's what it says. And if children, verse 17 of chapter 8, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Can you say amen to that? That's good news, right? Fellow heirs with Jesus Himself. We are heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. And then it says... If, and you should circle that word if, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Salvation, suffering, glorification all come in one package. Philippians chapter 3. Keep going to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And go to Philippians chapter 3, some of Paul's most famous writing. Here's what he says, Philippians 3.10. He's talking about how, well, let's just pick it up in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ." And may be, no, may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now verse 10. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer. Now, by the way, if you're not going to be a follower of Jesus, you're also going to suffer. (laughs) Being a human being means you're going to suffer. Well, what I'm saying is that being a follower of Jesus doesn't exempt you from it. In fact, it gives you other ways in which you might suffer that, that people who don't follow Jesus wouldn't even understand. 
Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. So we have to get through it. The Bible talks about endurance. We have to endure it. How do we endure suffering? I'm going to give you three things really quick. If you're a note taker, these are the things to write down. Number one, keep your eyes on the prize. Guys, the suffering happens. The struggles come. You got to keep your eyes on the prize because one of the enemy's greatest uh, tools is to get us focused on the little things and treat them as though they're the big things. We got to keep our eyes on the prize. Go to 2 Timothy, if you're in Philippians, a few more books to the right. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in 2 Timothy, we have the last writings of Paul. And here's what he's saying about his impending death. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I realize that I don't have much time left. But as I move closer and closer to that day which is around the corner in Paul's life, he says, I look forward to the guaranteed future where I'm going to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's going to place a crown on my head and he's going to say, well done. And you read Paul's writings and you read about what happened to Paul in the book of Acts and I will show you a man who walked with God faithfully for one reason and one reason only, because he was convinced that there was a future and that God had given him that future and hope. you got to keep your eyes on the prize or there's no way you're going to ever get through it. Listen, guys, um, every athlete who trains knows that you have, to, you have to endure the training in order to succeed in the contest. Everybody who's ever moved up the ladder in the corporate world knows that you have to put in the hours and do the work and you have to stay late and work weekends and do all that kind of stuff and you get those promotions before you finally get that corner office. This is the way that it works. Endurance is what it takes to get to the point that you're being called to get to. The problem is that we set our sights on things like corner offices and races. We need to set our sights on a heavenly crown. On a God who looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were so faithful and so patient with that disabled child that I gave you to raise. And you loved him and you treated him and you gave, laid down your whole life to take care of him. You put up with that spouse who never came to know me and they never treated you right. And you kept loving them in Jesus' name. You kept doing it. You kept serving. You kept honoring me in the way that you did it. You kept living below your means financially so you could support ministry in other places where there were people who needed it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's a crown of righteousness. We got to keep our eyes on the prize. A second thing we need to do is we've got to maintain an eternal perspective. These two things go hand in hand. Back to the book of Romans. Remember we looked at Romans 8, 17. Let's look at it one more time. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. But look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen. 
I'm a lot older than I used to be. Some of you, when I look out on you now, look so young to me. Some of you still look old. But you know what? If you live to be 110, you're going to find that it goes by like that. Right? Isn't that true? Roger, you're 110 years. They go through pretty fast. Yeah, quickly. <laughs> they just go fast, right? I'm in my 50s now. I just can't believe it. I don't know where all that time went. My, my kids are growing. I'm looking at grandkids. I'm like, when are the great-grandkids coming? They're coming tomorrow, next week. Because that's how the time goes, guys. It goes so fast. But let me tell you something. You were not created for time. You were created for eternity. And eternity is forever. Amen. Forever. And we keep storing up treasures in the things that rust destroys and thieves steal and moths eat. And God says, hey, store up treasures in heaven where those things don't happen because eternity is forever. And sometimes when I am faced with a crossroads in this life and I'm going to have to go this way, which I know is the wrong way, but it looks much more appealing than going the way that honors God and involves suffering. The only thing that's going to help me take the right path is remembering that this is a short time and eternity is forever. We got to keep in mind that God has an eternal perspective and he's in the process of molding us into the image of Christ, not just for now, but forever forever. Third thing I will give you, we have to trust in God's plan. Maybe my favorite passage in the whole Bible is the beginning of James chapter 1. And if you just turn to James real quick, it's after Hebrews. Let me read it to you. James 1 verses 2 through 4. If you didn't turn there, just write it in your notes. You can look it up later. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, listen, we make our plans and we think we've got it figured out. And even when we become Christians, we go, okay, now my plan has to include God and I'm going I'm to include God in my plans. But you know what? God has a plan that is bigger than you understand. And it has eternal significance. And it has an impact. And, and sometimes we have to suffer so we can develop endurance so that we can become the kind of people God can use for His plan. And His plan is always for good. we got to trust in God's plan. When I was in that hospital bed, I was weak. I was in pain. And I was helpless. And I was right in the middle of God's plan. The nurses kept commenting to me. It got to the point where it was a running joke. The nurses kept commenting to me that I was the toughest patient they'd ever had. They would try to make me do some exercise and I would just get up and do it. And they'd go, oh, doesn't that hurt? And i go, yeah. Don't you want some morphine? No. Well, maybe we could give you some kind of pain medication. No, I, th I think I'm okay. Listen, don't try to be tough. It's okay. It's okay. Take this medication because that pain's going to get you and you're going to be sorry. I said, you know, to be honest, it's not that bad. It's okay. And the nurse looks at me and says, you're, you're the toughest patient I've ever had. 
I said, listen, let me tell you something. My wife is sitting right here. You can ask her. I'm anything but tough. I'm not tough. I don't have a high tolerance for pain. I don't just, I'm not the guy who goes out and trains and runs the marathon. I know that's shocking to all of you to hear. <laughs> that is not me. I am not tough. So I'm not the toughest patient you have ever had, but here's what I'll tell you. I'll bet I'm the most prayed for patient you've ever had. Because all you guys are praying for me, I get a chance to sit there and talk to nurses and doctors about my church family and what it's like to be a part of a church family that actually has each other's back and actually loves each other and actually supports each other and takes care of each other and prays for each other. Talked about how we have these little connect cards and we fill them out and then we diligently get on our knees and pray for each other all week and we see God answering those prayers. I said, listen, I'm telling you, I have a great church that prays for me. Another thing is I've had the privilege of going all over the world in ministry. I know people in every continent. I don't know any Antarcticans, but everybody else. I got people everywhere. I'm getting, I'm getting emails from people while I'm in the hospital. We're praying for you in, in the Philippines. Hey, we're praying for you in Europe. Hey, we're praying for you here in Africa. We're praying for you in Korea. Everybody's praying for me. I said, guys, I'm the most prayed for person. And that led me to conversations about Jesus. And that's not just prayer, it's Jesus who has power. And I got to tell my nurses about Jesus. And I got to do it without having to be on strong pain medication. So my mind was clear and I was able to communicate. You know, another thing that happens in the hospital is you lose all track of time after you spend a few days. You don't know if it's night or day. Your body doesn't care. You're awake when you're awake and you're asleep when you're asleep. And I'm awake in the middle of the night, and the nurses don't have as much to do in the middle of the night. So she comes in and starts taking my vitals and doing all that kind of stuff. And we strike up a conversation. She starts asking me, asking me about Jesus. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> I got all night, nowhere to go. I, I, I told her my entire testimony. I started with childhood and moved all the way up to today and talked about the faithfulness of Jesus. And when she walked out of the room three hours later, she said, I'm going to be in a Christian church on Sunday for the first time. Yeah. One night I had a therapist who came in and you guys, ther the therapists are the people you hate in the hospital. <laughs> they make you hurt. And the therapist comes in and it's night and everybody's sleeping and she's twisting me and turning me and making me do stuff that hurts. And, uh, and we start talking and I start looking for an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And she says, you know, I, I grew up in the church. My parents are very religious. I said, but not you? She said, no, I left as soon as I could. Really, why? All the hypocrisy. I said, really, tell me about that. And I listened while she told me her story. And then I got to introduce her to this Jesus who's not like the hypocrites who represent him. And I said, don't judge Jesus based on the weakest of his followers. We're all just people. But Jesus is the real deal. And she said, I'm going to be back in church on Sunday. Guys, I'm telling you, in six days of laying in a hospital bed, I did more effective evangelistic ministry than I had done in six months outside the hospital unbelievable I was in pain I was stuck in a hospital bed I was in danger and I was right in the middle of God's plan God will water those seeds 
God will be faithful to harvest that crop. My job, your job, is to represent Him where we are. So when you're in that tough workplace, consider the possibility that maybe God has put you in that tough workplace because it's tough for everybody else too and they need to see some light in that darkness. When you're in that tough marriage, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And all you see is God saying, you know, keep loving that husband, keep loving that wife, keep being the, better, the bigger person, keep forgiving. And you're struggling and struggling and struggling. Just remember that God may have placed you in that place and you alone are in the place where you could have the most influence on that spouse who's so difficult to love. I'm not saying it's easy. I didn't enjoy it at all. But it was fruitful. Sometimes a painful place is right smack in the middle of God's will. Sometimes the most painful place is the most impactful. If you don't believe me, just look at the cross. What are you going through right now that's hard to bear? I wonder what would happen if we could get an eternal perspective on some of this stuff. I wonder what would happen if we would keep our eyes on the prize and, and not waver from the track that God has placed us on and remember what's really important. I wonder what would happen if we could become people who would trust in God's plan more than we trust in our plan. Maybe God would use us to change the world. Let's stand and pray together.